If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Acts chapter 2. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again and ask for His aid and assistance. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Father, may we recognize the utter truth of that today. And so, Father, may you enable the proclaiming of your word. May you enable the hearing of your word. Father, may your word and spirit be active in us today. May our eyes be opened to see, our ears be open to hear, our minds be open to know, our hearts be open to embrace, and our hands open to receive your truth that leads to life, life in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Last Sunday was the event of Pentecost. The Spirit descended, the apostles spoke. And the crowd reacted. Today, we're moving beyond the event, as it were, of Pentecost to the explanation of Pentecost. And next Sunday, uh, we're going to just keep on trucking because it's going to be the effect of Pentecost, the effect of the resurrection. Uh, the timing could not have been better. I doubt we, any of us have heard an Easter sermon from Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 37 through 41. But the more that I've even looked ahead to that, Oh, what a great Easter message of the transforming power of the gospel. Let's step back for a moment and orient ourselves to Acts. Let's take a look at the big picture. Remember, Acts is is Luke's bridge between the four gospels and the rest of the New Testament. If Luke, that is volume one, is what Jesus began to do and teach, then then. Acts is Luke volume 2 of all that Jesus continued to do and teach. We've been saying that Acts, and as we will see this more and more in the weeks ahead, Acts vividly portrays the truth of Jesus' promise to build His church. If you look at the something to think about quote today, it's an extended version of what I've been saying, and, and that is this, like all Scripture Acts' purpose is to inform and deepen our faith in Jesus Christ. And Acts does this in a special way by letting us view how Jesus, again, kept his promise to be with his church and build his church through the personal presence and power of the Holy Spirit. You see, Acts is given to strengthen our faith. For some, it may be that which God uses to bring to faith, but for those who acknowledge Already, Jesus, it's to strengthen our faith. And remember, it it, it reminds us that Christianity is grounded in the acts of God in history. Something that goes without saying should be said sometimes over and over and over again. The gospel is good news. It's good news of what God has done. It's not good advice for what we have to do. Oh, my friends, if you 
And I appreciated Eric mentioning that, uh, that soundbite, as it were, of the gospel being good news. If we, in the struggles of life, can just remember something as simple as that, oh, would that take us back to the scriptures which fully develop the good news of salvation in Christ. To be sure there are things to do and to be done, but that comes next after receiving what God has already done. It's the acts of the apostles, the acts of the exalted Christ by the Holy Spirit in the church founded by him through the apostles. Remember, it's, it's not so much acts of the apostles. That might seem too man-centered. It's not just acts of the Holy Spirit. That might just seem too divine-centered. It's both. Jesus, through His Spirit, in the church, founded by Him through the apostles. As we get into today's text, you'll notice in Acts, there are deeds. And in Acts, there are addresses. There are deeds and words. There are speeches, in fact. There are 19 significant speeches in Acts. 19 of them. Eight by Peter, one by Stephen, one by James, and nine by Paul. How do you like that symmetry? Eight by Peter, one by Stephen, one by James, and nine by Paul. Well, what Luke has described in the first 13 verses of Acts 2, Peter now explains in a sermon. Let me ask us all this question before we begin. How do you like criticism? How well do you receive criticism? Do you like being told you're wrong? Do you enjoy being told you're sinful? Well, you know, most of us, we can handle that, you know, like, you're sinful. Yes, I'm sinful, I know. The world will say, hey, you do bad things. Yes, I, I know I do bad things. But what about this specific? On this day, at this time, you did this specifically. Yet, as we will see, this is what happens in this first sermon. Are, are you kidding me? Peter is going to criticize, as he proclaims Christ, he's going to criticize his audience, his listener. Do you think Peter is trying to win friends, get people on his side? Peter is going to say, you are wrong. You have sinned. He goes straight to the heart. Not just you're sinful, not just you're bad, but check it out. You are murderers. Verse 23, you crucified and killed. Verse 36, this Jesus whom you crucified. The Bible is promises made and promises kept. It's all about Jesus. The Old Testament where Jesus is predicted. The Gospels where Jesus is revealed. Acts where Jesus is proclaimed. The letters when Jesus is explained. And Revelation where Jesus is expected. Here in Acts, Jesus is proclaimed, Jesus is preached. And so today is a sermon about a sermon. And we are going to analyze the sermon. You know, sometimes uh, what I hear that a lot of folks have for Sunday dinner is roast preacher. Where 
you're going over what you heard in the sermon. Now, hopefully, if lunchtime discussion can actually involve the content of the sermon, that's a great thing. Wouldn't that be great? Well, we're going to analyze this sermon. We're going to break it down. We're going to look at the introduction, and he's got two points. And they're alliteration, Joel and Jesus. And then he's going to conclude. So let's look at the introduction to Peter's sermon, verses 14 and 15. Notice Peter is standing with the eleven. He's acting as their spokesman. And Peter now has power, the power that was promised that would come. Remember, what did Peter do at night? Anybody remember what Peter did one night? He denied Jesus, right? How many times, kids? Once, three times. Now in the daytime, what is he doing? He's proclaiming Jesus. What a transformation. Give ear, he says. Pay close attention. Listen carefully. He's going to give an overview of the gospel. Now, verse 15 begins to answer the question, what does this mean? Remember, the people are amazed. They're perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And Peter's going to say, I'll tell you what it means. First, what it doesn't mean, they are not drunk. Because drunks don't speak clearly. They slur. They're confused and confusing However, these people are speaking under the influence. They're speaking under the influence of the Spirit. Now, when I said that to myself, I said, wow. When I'm talking, do my words betray I'm being influenced more by the Lord or by my flesh? Ask yourself, who's got the biggest influence in your life? Notice that the sermon is not canned. Peter doesn't pull it out of his pocket as his traveling one sermon. No, he starts where they are, but as we will see, it doesn't stay where they are. It will take them then, and it takes us now somewhere. Well, following this introduction, Peter goes on to make his first point. The event of Pentecost is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. What Joel predicted, God has fulfilled. Again, promises made by God are promises kept by God. So in verses 16 through 21, Peter is going to quote the Old Testament minor prophet Joel. Notice how Peter starts with Scripture. He appeals to authority to an authority that people held to. His audience is going to have already said, we believe the scriptures. We are are the Jews. We're in Jerusalem. We believe what our fathers have given us. He starts with scripture. And he speaks of the inauguration of the last days, in verse 17, of those days, verse 18, that God will pour out his spirit on all kinds of people. It's the image of a heavy tropical rainstorm. In fact, it's the image of some of the rains we get here when a storm comes in. The pouring out of the Spirit, it it, it displays, as we will see, generosity. It's a gift. 
finality. It, it cannot be gathered again and a universality. It's irrespective. It's coming on all kinds of people. It's not dependent upon outward status. He quotes Joel saying that they will prophesy. In other words, they will speak for me. They will declare my mighty works. Now that's the inauguration of these last days, but there's a consummation of the last days will be, as we see in verse 20, the day of the Lord. Between this inauguration on the day of Pentecost and the consummation of the last days, that is the return of Jesus, is the day of salvation. So children, between Jesus' ascent to heaven to Jesus' return in glory to judge the living and the dead, as our creed says, that time, that day, is the day of salvation. Indeed, Paul writes the Corinthian church, now is the day of salvation. And in that day, there is a great hope. If you call on the name of the Lord, then you will be saved. Now, after Peter establishes the fact that the event of Pentecost was the fulfillment of God's promises to pour out his spirit through Joel, he goes on to show that the pouring out of the spirit has to do ultimately with Jesus. In other words, the best way to understand Pentecost is not through its Old Testament prediction, as important as that is, but rather through its New Testament fulfillment. Not through Joel, as important as he is, but through Jesus. And he will do this, as we will see, through evidence, both from the Scriptures and eyewitnesses. So his second point is Jesus. Peter testifies to Jesus. Remember, he quotes Joel, and now he's going to testify to Jesus. Because Peter is beginning to understand that it is the ministry of Jesus that has inaugurated the era of the Spirit. And if you'll walk with me through what he says beginning in verse 22, you'll see that he presents the story of Jesus in four stages. First, his incarnation, his life and ministry. We said it in verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Now remember, this is 50 days, 50 days after the resurrection. 40 days of that, Jesus was with his apostles and others. And then there was that 10 day of waiting. Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Not years ago, but weeks ago. It's brief. Because you cannot deny his mighty works and wonders and signs. You see, that's like thinking even back to a month ago. You guys remember what happened two months ago? So everybody would have heard of Jesus, would have known of Jesus, the man. But then he moves on from his incarnation to his death. He gets right to his death. Notice how the death of Jesus is attributed simultaneously both to the purpose of God, His sovereignty, and to the wickedness of man. You see this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There it is. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Man's agenda versus God's plan and purpose. 
So who killed Jesus? It's a good question to ask. Who? Well, Peter is saying you, Jews, killed Jesus. And the Romans, the non-Jews, the Gentiles, the lawless, the wicked, they killed Jesus. Now, children, in that day and age, the world was divided into two people. If, you're, if your life is centered in Jerusalem, there's the Jews and who else? The Gentiles, everybody else. And so what Peter is saying, who killed Jesus? Everyone killed Jesus. Let's move on from what they did, that is crucify him, to what God did, resurrect him. So third is his resurrection. And notice it's verses 24 through 32. It's the long section. It's more than even on the death and the atonement. And notice that Peter doesn't have to prove He simply proclaims and bears witness to the resurrection. In fact, every Easter, I I hear somebody, I read somebody rightfully make the point that the resurrection of Jesus has more eyewitnesses than almost any other historical event. And if this was made up, if Jesus' body was somehow just taken by his followers, you would have all of the eyewitnesses up in arms. I mean... Stop and think about that for a minute. So he doesn't need to prove it. He proclaims it. And he says about death that the pangs of death could not hold Jesus. That There's agony. There's a labor involved. Because Jesus' death will lead to resurrection just as labor pains lead to birth. You see, the grave can no more hold Jesus than a woman in labor hold the baby. When labor starts, the baby will be born. He goes to Scripture, verses 25 through 28, and he quotes Psalm 16. Again, he's using common ground. And then he interprets Scripture because he remembers that Jesus gave him a lesson on interpretation. And here's the lesson. Peter and others, it's all about me. You see, Jesus' instruction and the Spirit's illumination opened his eyes. And Peter then knows about the patriarch David. He's revered by everyone, understandably. He's dead. He's buried. His tomb is right over here. But Peter quickly goes, it's not about David. It's about Jesus. You may have heard the expression, All roads lead to London. In other words, if you're in England, London is the most important city. And the saying is that wherever you are, eventually that road will get you to London. Well, Peter and others are finally waking up to the reality that all Scripture leads to Jesus. Not only did Joel lead to Jesus, but David, of course, leads to Jesus. But not only is Scripture a witness to the resurrection, but Peter is saying we are witnesses to the resurrection. You see it in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Again, if that had not happened, there is no way you could have controlled a lie. But truth is easier to control because it's just the truth. And it stands. 
So with the resurrection of Christ, both the witnesses of the prophets, think about it, the biblical witness and the witness of the apostles, the historical witnesses, converge. Kids, what does converge mean? That's a big word, but what does it mean, converge? It comes together. When two roads meet, they converge. And so Peter, in an interesting way, is saying the Old Testament and the New Testament have how many messages? How many messages? One message. They converge. The biblical witness, the apostolic witness. And then fourth, after his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, fourth is his exaltation. And we see that in verses 33 through 35. Jesus has been restored to the place, as it were, that he's occupied from all eternity. And they not only witness his resurrection, but they witness his ascension, his exaltation. And because of his exaltation, Jesus himself has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. And what does Jesus do with that gift? He pours it out. And I think that's why the early church fathers, when they were wrestling with things and the Nicene Creed, they spoke of the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. And the Gospel of John will speak of the Spirit being sent by the Father and the Spirit being sent by the Son. In verse 33, we read this. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Think back with me to last week. It was the hearing, like the rushing wind, and then it was the seeing, right? The tongues of fire. And so here's another audio-visual experience. You are seeing fire. You have heard, as it were, the wind. And he quotes at the end Psalm 110, and he's not referring to, to David, but as David himself understood, he's return, referring to his Lord who will, at his return, make his enemies become his footstool. So that's the story of Jesus, his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation. Now, having brought everything to Jesus, Peter now brings his sermon to a conclusion. And it's a dramatic climax. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It's a theological evaluation of Jesus. God exalted him in reality and power, what he already was by right. God has made it evident. Remember in, earlier in Luke, the angel said, who would be born a Savior who is Christ the Lord? who is Christ the Lord, who's Lord over salvation, and who's Lord over the distribution of the benefits of salvation. In other words, He is in control. Jesus is Lord. But He's the Christ. He's the long-expected Messiah, the Anointed One, the prophet, priest, and king. He's the figure. He's the deliverer, the redeemer. The resurrection of Jesus and the pouring out of the Spirit both testify together 
that Jesus of Nazareth was and is Lord and Christ. How does Peter end this sermon? Look again at verse 36. Therefore, know for certain. Know for certain. Remember how John ends the Gospel of John? But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Remember, John is writing John to bring people to faith, and John is writing his first letter to assure people of faith. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You see, know for certain, he is saying, that you killed Jesus. In other words, you are the enemies of God's Messiah. You, in other words, are enemies of God. What a way to end a sermon. Earlier we heard about, a few years ago, the the mayor of the city of Houston, Texas, issued subpoenas, or threatened to, for all sermons preached in the city limits of Houston to to find out if there was hate speech in the sermon. My friends, Peter's sermon could be viewed, of course, As hate speech. But of course as we will see it's speech that will bring life. Just a brief word about 37. It's the beginning of the response to the sermon. The effect of the sermon. You know when they heard this. You see the spirit must empower not only the speaking. But the listening. They were cut to the heart. And so the question moves. And we'll see this next week. From what does this mean. To what shall we do. So at the end, Peter focuses on two historical events, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he appeals to two witnesses, the prophets and the apostles. Peter traces the gift of the Spirit back through the promise and fulfillment. If God promised through Joel that he would pour out the Spirit, and if Jesus has now poured out the Spirit on his followers, then there can be only one conclusion. Jesus is the Christ and the Lord on whose name we must call for salvation. So regarding Pentecost, we've already considered the event. We're now considered the explanation. Luke's narrative of the event and now Peter's sermon, his explanation. Next week, we'll consider the effect of Pentecost as we begin to see it being outworked in the life of the church. But before we get to next week, what should we take away with us from Peter's sermon? His answer to the question, what does this mean? Well, in telling us what this means, Peter lets us know this. The church has only one sermon to preach. The church only has one message to proclaim. You see, Peter's sermon is first, not only in time, but in position and priority. His sermon, you see, is a presentation of the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? Well, first and foremost, it's not about what we must do, but it's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And at the heart of what God has done in Jesus Christ is 
His death and resurrection. His death, as it were, achieves salvation. And His resurrection validates His life. And His exaltation results in the sending of the Holy Spirit to do what? To apply salvation. Here we are seeing redemption accomplished and redemption applied. And so in showing us what God has done, it shows us also what we have done. You see, my friends, the audience then and the audience now needs to hear that we have rejected God. We have denied God. You, you have done this. You see, was it our greed like Judas? Was it our envy like the priest and other religious leaders? Was it our cowardice like Pilate? What was it? You know, we sang how deep the Father's love. It was my sin that held Him there until it was accomplished. So ask yourself, put, put a zip code on your sin. Put a mailing address on your sin. A P.O. box. Put a GPS latitude and longitude on your sin. You see, the gospel, in addition to showing us what God has done, it, it shows us who we are, what we have done. We are sinners in need of rescue, in need of salvation. Then and only then does the same gospel show us what to do in response, and we will see that next week. So my friends, let me end where we began with this question. Do you like criticism? I would love to say that I always receive criticism well, but if you're like me, you might have a hard time with it sometimes. Do you like to be told that you are wrong, sinful? Yet when we go to the doctor, what do we want to be told? We want to be told the truth. Even if it hurts, we all know that an accurate diagnosis is required if the right treatment, if the right cure is to be applied. And so, as Peter's sermon shows us, before the gospel can be received as good news, it first must be received as bad news. And we'll take a look at the good news next week. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word that you have preserved for your people. We thank you for this not only narrative account, but recreation of the sermon that was proclaimed, that drew attention to the sinfulness of man and the person and work of Jesus Christ. Father, with whatever road we find ourselves on today, I pray that you would sovereignly direct our paths so that we could find that they all lead to Jesus. Father, help us to receive criticism from your word by your spirit, knowing that if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more? Will you give good gifts, including the Holy Spirit, to your children? 
we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.